Thanks for that, Abby. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome again to church. My name's Lockie, and it's such a privilege to be here tonight and yeah, being able to share a message from the Word of God with you. So tonight will be our last sermon, our last message, our last week in this mini-series we've been doing on the book of Isaiah. Uh, we'll be looking at Isaiah 11 tonight, but Isaiah is a pretty chunky book. Uh, we haven't been able to get through everything, even in the first 11 chapters, totally in depth. We've just been scratching the surface. So I would encourage you all to go back and to read these first 11 chapters uh, for yourselves. And I'm sure that you'll find amazing things uh, that God will be speaking to you through these chapters. So yeah, we just totally recommend that. So just before we get into chapter 11, would you please pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. Uh, we ask that as we open your word, you would speak to us, uh, you would touch our spirits, you would teach us what you want us to say. Uh, we, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here tonight, and we pray that you would be glorified as we worship you uh, in song in and through the reading and uh, exposition of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. At 701 BC, you're an inhabitant of Jerusalem. The Assyrian army is coming down from the north. They've assaulted Ayath, taken Migron, conquered Michmash and Geba and Ramah. Gibeah and Galim have been taken. Lysha, Anathoth and Madmia lie in ruins. Gebim and Nob are deserted. They've taken these towns with impunity, destroyed them with ease, and they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to you and your family, closer and closer to the temple of your God. You know fighting against them's hopeless. You feel helpless. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for hope? It's 2015 AD. You're a Christian in the Middle East. ISIS is ravaging the surrounding countries. You've seen Christian friends be killed. You know that if anyone finds out that you're a Christian, you'll be next. Your family, your children, they'll be next. You have discussions with your wife about what to do if the secret police break in and they're torturing you and raping you. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for hope? It's 2021 AD. You're a Christian in Adelaide in South Australia. You watch the news and see the headlines. 10,000 people dying every day from COVID. 50 million plus babies killed in their mother's womb every year. Over 100 million people in Africa facing catastrophic levels of food shortage. Over 3 billion unreached people in the world. They're born, they live and they die without ever hearing the hope of the gospel. Our culture is becoming more and more hostile to the beliefs of traditional Christianity. Where do we turn for hope? Where do we turn for comfort? Most of us just prefer to turn our minds away from these things. The fact that we struggle to answer these questions just disappears when we conveniently forget about these situations. But we don't have to turn away and ignore these things. There are answers and Isaiah gives them to us in chapter 11. 
he's writing specifically to address these first set of circumstances with Assyria marching down from the north towards Jerusalem. But I believe his recommendations just as relevant to us today in 21st century Adelaide. I hope that by the end of this message tonight, you know where you can turn next time you are overwhelmed by hopelessness and by helplessness. To our faithful God, to our good King, to His good kingdom, and to His plan for getting us there. So please open up your Bibles, stick with me as we look into Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this verse provides the foundation for this whole chapter, so it's important that we spend a bit of time here figuring out what Isaiah means. He says that the stump of Jesse will produce a shoot, will produce a branch. So first, what's this whole stump of Jesse business? Well, first we have to ask, who is Jesse? Who was Jesse? Uh, We hear about Jesse in 1 Samuel 16. He was a man from the town of Bethlehem. He had eight sons and at least a few sheep. He was pretty much a nobody living in the middle of nowhere. The thing was, God had chosen one of his sons to be the second king of Israel. That son was King David, the most famous, godly and beloved king in the whole history of Israel. So Jesse is famous because he's David's dad, sort of a fame by association kind of thing. And so now we come to David. And this is where things get a little bit more relevant. Under David, the kingdom of Israel had its golden age. He was a godly ruler, a mighty king. He unified Israel and his kingdom grew bigger and stronger year by year. He could do nothing wrong. Well, Almost nothing. Anyway, under David, things were good. They were great. But unfortunately, David suffered from the same fate as all of us mere humans. He was mortal. He was going to get older and eventually die. Then what would happen to his kingdom? Spoiler alert, it would all eventually crumble into pieces. But God makes a promise to David. This kingdom that you have built... It won't be in vain. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. As time goes on, we see David's son Solomon fulfill some of these things. He does, in fact, come from David's body. He does build a temple for the Lord. But again, he's mortal. How can his throne be established forever? And we see Solomon go a bit off track. And from then on, there's mostly a downward trajectory of one bad king after another, doing worse and worse things. Than their predecessors. Ollie mentioned that in the first talk of the series. The kings in Isaiah's day were bad kings. But in the midst of this, God's promise is still there and God's people know it. They start looking at this promise, not only referring to Solomon, 
but also to a coming king from the line of David, a king who would restore David's kingdom and be a great king, just like David was. This coming king, this Messiah, that was the hope they were holding on to. Even 250 years later, in the time of Isaiah, the people were holding out for this hero. So when Isaiah starts by reminding them of this coming king in the face of their helplessness and their hopelessness, of course this is comforting. They know that this downward trajectory of bad and worse kings will eventually end and the Messiah will come. But Isaiah tempers his message. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's from a stump that this Messiah will spring forth. In chapter 6, verse 13, Isaiah talks about how the remnant of God's people, once strong and mighty like an oak or a terebinth tree, have now been chopped down. Only the stump remains. And that stump has been burnt again and again with fire. This is the future that Isaiah sees for the people of Israel, for the line of David. And it plays out in the next 700 years. The northern kingdom, Israel, is wiped out by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, is taken off into exile in Babylon. The Greeks conquer all this land and impose the rule on it. Then the Romans come in and take over from what the Greeks have done. The people of God suffer under the rule of others. The line of David is so woeful that Isaiah doesn't even call it that. He references Jesse instead. It doesn't deserve to be associated with the king. But God is faithful. He doesn't forget his promises. And so just like David was born to Jesse and nobody, in Bethlehem, the middle of nowhere, another son is born to Mary and Joseph, people of no renown, in the middle of nowhere, in Bethlehem. And there's one more piece of information. Joseph is a descendant of David, and this son, Jesus, is the fulfillment of that promise made to his ancestor David over a thousand years before. This is the hope that Isaiah was holding out to the people in Jerusalem 750 years earlier. God is faithful. What he has promised, he will bring about. And so when we, like the people of Jerusalem, are surrounded by enemies, by worry, by fear, by hopelessness, we can look to and trust in the promises of our faithful God. For he is in control. And though none of the people in Isaiah's time lived to see this promise come real, those who hoped in its fulfillment in Jesus, they had their hopes set on solid ground. But we all too often trust, not in the promises of God, but in the power structures of today. And this is our downfall. We think that, oh, only if the other political party had won the election, everything would be fine. Only if Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk donated 10% of their wealth to help people starving in the world, all these problems 
would go away. If only our soldiers defeated ISIS so definitively in the Middle East, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters would be able to live happily. If only, if only, if only. We place our hope and our trust in flawed people. And they don't solve all the problems in our lives. In fact, sometimes the problems only grow. And we retreat from that into a place of helplessness, a place of hopelessness. But what if there was somewhere else we could place our hope? Someone who would not fail us. A good ruler. A good king. And this is Isaiah's next point. This Messiah who is coming. This descendant of David and of Jesse. He is the good king. He is the good ruler. He's the one we can trust to do right by us. Like the former kings of Israel, like David and Saul, under whose rule things went well for us, this coming king will be filled with the spirit of the Lord. This spirit will give him wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. He'll be a king with these characteristics. And in the following verses, in verses 3 to 5, Isaiah goes on to explain how these characteristics work themselves out in his rule. He cannot be deceived or swayed by what he sees or he hears. He knows the heart of the matter. And through the wisdom and the counsel that the Spirit brings, he judges things rightly. He has no bias towards the rich and powerful, but treats the poor and the lowly with righteousness and equity. He does what's right by them. He cares about them. He's immensely powerful, but he's not reckless or unjust with the use of this power. He destroys that which is harmful to his people. They can find protection and refuge in him. Two of his most fundamental qualities are righteousness and faithfulness. Oh, if only more of our leaders acted like this. If only they were more like him. But unfortunately, they're not. They never will be. So I I encourage you tonight to be realistic with how much hope you put in these human leaders, in structures, in policies. And next time that you recognize that this is where you've put your hope, might you pray instead that God would help you put your hope in this mighty and just king we see in Isaiah. Next time you're disappointed by human leaders, everything feels hopeless and helpless. Turn to this leader. Pray that he might show you how much better it is to live under his reign and rule how much hope and peace you can find in that so now we've seen that god sorry now we've seen that we can turn to our god who is faithful to keep his promises and also to this just and faithful king that god has sent but now we start to look at this kingdom that this king came to establish now the first word of jesus of this king who came in fulfillment of God's promise to David, his first words in the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, now the king has arrived. The kingdom too is at hand. But what will his kingdom be like? And Isaiah sees a glimpse of it. And so I want you to read with me the verses will be up on the screen from 6 to 9, verses 6 to 9. And as we do, I want you to just picture what Isaiah is describing in your mind. Imagine this scene. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you picture that? Isaiah sees wolves, these hated beasts that come in and devour the flocks. Now they're not attacking and killing, but they're living together with them. The fearsome lion will lie down with the helpless calf. Predators and prey living together without enmity, without fear, with peace. And they'll all be so tame that a young child can tell them what to do, where to go. This young child is safe around them. We also see that the fundamental nature of these animals has, has been changed. The bear eats grass like the cow does. The lion will eat straw like an ox. No more will they get their sustenance from killing other animals and eating them. There'll be peace and life instead of fear and death. Even more amazingly, we see in verse 8 that the enmity between serpents and humans has been removed. This was part of the first curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. After the snake convinces Adam and Eve to sin, God says to that serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. In this kingdom that the king is bringing in, even that curse has been lifted. Isn't this an amazing picture? Doesn't it make you want to live in a world like that? Everlasting peace, joy, no pain or harm or fear. And God says that is what we as Christians have to look forward to. It's what Isaiah holds out as an answer for our times of helplessness and hopelessness. Don't forget that this is what our faithful God has promised, he says. There is hope and there is peace and it's coming. Now, if you remember the stories I mentioned in my intro, I first talked about the hopelessness of Isaiah's time with the invasion of Assyria, then about a persecuted Christian in the Middle East, finally about us today. Now, the middle story wasn't just a random example. It actually comes from a documentary I watched recently called Sheep Among Wolves. It's on YouTube. I definitely recommend watching it with the warning that it's very full-on and very confronting. In this documentary, they interview a Christian man from the Middle East who's in a seemingly 
hopeless position. His Christian friends have been executed. There's a very real possibility that the secret police will break into their house and torture and kill him. His wife, his children are in huge danger. And we ask him, how can he live like that? Do you want to hear his answer? He says, the only way I can experience that moment and not crack and not bow, like Daniel didn't bow and his friends didn't bow to the statue, is to think about the age to come. If I think about that at that moment, what is one day of death? What's 10 days of torture? What's 10 years in jail? What's 40 years in solitary confinement? What's all that compared to eternity? This man has seen the hope in the picture that Isaiah is holding out in these verses. He's seen the comfort in the promise of a faithful God to send a good king who will build, who will build a kingdom where there is peace, where everything is put to right. Oh, my brothers and sisters, to have that faith, to have that hope. And we can. When we follow Isaiah's advice and turn our eyes to the kingdom that will be established when our king returns. But right now, we live in an in-between space. The Messiah has come and he has brought the beginning of this amazing kingdom. So we, as followers of this Messiah, should be living in small bubbles of this kingdom. Our families and our churches should be places of peace and hope where we, people who are so different and opposite and incompatible in the eyes of the world, like the prey and the predator, can come together and we can live differently, having been changed from the inside out because of this Messiah and because of our entry into his kingdom. But this kingdom will only be fully realized with the return of our king. This kingdom is now, but not yet. But worry not, for God has a plan for this kingdom to expand. And we see that in the last section of chapter 11 of Isaiah. So in this section from verses 10 to 16, we see Isaiah repeat points and ideas quite a lot. And this is a common motif in biblical Hebrew poetry. Here we see in these verses that there are two main themes, a gathering and ascending. First, God promises to gather his people and unite them under one signal. Other translations use the word banner. This is a military banner, a standard. And Isaiah is using this word to give us a mental image of a huge army gathered together, unified, and ready for war. And that banner is the root of Jesse, the same Messiah that we saw promised in verse 1, the same king who we saw described in verses 2 to 5, the one who will bring about the kingdom that Isaiah describes in verses 6 to 9. This future gathering event of God's people 
is likened to the exodus. In verse 11, Isaiah says that the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover his people. He's reminding his audience that the first time God did that was when he brought the Egyptians up out of slavery in Egypt. And again, at the at the end of the passage, in verses 15 and 16, the Exodus is mentioned again. The destruction, the parting of the Red Sea to form a highway for God's people to cross a previously uncrossable barrier so that they could come into his presence, into the promised land. Kind of sounds a bit like what Jesus came to do for us. Hey, Isaiah also talks about how this remnant of God's people will be gathered from all nations. In verse 10, he talks about the nations, that is the non-Jews, coming to inquire of this root of Jesse. In verse 11, he talks about God's people coming back from all of these different countries to be gathered together under the banner of the Messiah. Now, if you look at the map on the screen, you'll see that what Isaiah is getting at is the thing that he says again in verse 12. People are coming from the four points of the compass, from north, east, south, and west, from the four quarters of the earth to gather together under this king. And they can only do this because God has removed the barriers that were stopping them. Interestingly, Paul interprets this prophecy that Isaiah is making as talking about the time where Paul himself lived, just after Jesus had died and been resurrected. When it was made clear that the Gentiles too were welcomed into the people of God. He quotes Isaiah 11.10 and he uses this idea as motivation for his, mes- as motivation for his mission to spread the gospel out among the non-Jewish people. Because Jesus, by his death, had removed the barriers between them and God. They too could come and join this mighty army gathered under the Messiah. And Paul's response, that is going out and inviting people into this family, into this hope, doing his best to help the gospel and this kingdom expand, this is the response that Isaiah envisions as well. He uses the war language of conquering and destroying, but his main point is that this united force of God's people spreads out into the world and advances the kingdom of the Messiah. And this is where we are today. We're in the same boat as Paul, living after the death and resurrection, but before the return of Jesus. The kingdom is expanding and conquering. People are becoming Christians. God is using his united people to spread his message of hope to the world until the Messiah returns, until the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so in the face of hopelessness, helplessness, we don't have to turn away and cower to forget about it, hope it just goes away. God desires to use us. He can and he will use us to conquer 
to overcome, to help in the expansion of his kingdom, knowing that this is not in vain. So where can we step up? Where can we push out against the forces of darkness that want us to feel hopeless and to feel helpless? How will you and I work for the expansion of the kingdom of God? Do we, like Paul, head out into the nations proclaiming the message of hope in the gospel? Do we give up our rights, our rights of freedom to gather together as God's people, our right to an easy life, our right to life itself, like our Christian brothers and sisters do in the Middle East? Do we march for the right of life to the unborn and the disabled and the elderly? Do we sponsor a child or a family or a village somewhere in the world so they have enough food to eat? How are you going to be part of this conquering army of God? So I hope tonight that you all see that when we're faced with situations, world events, with a culture and a society that overwhelm us, make us feel hopeless and make us feel helpless, that make us feel like we have no way we can conquer. We should just turn away and do our best to live in our little bubbles, not thinking about these things. I hope we see there's another option, a better option. We can turn to our God who is faithful to bring about his promise. We can turn to our King, to Jesus, who rules and will rule with justice and faithfulness. We can turn our eyes to the promised and coming kingdom of our King, where all will be made right. These worries will be no more. And we can take comfort in the fact that God has a plan and wants to use us in the spread of his kingdom. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, I'd like to encourage you to think about where you turn when you're faced with hopelessness and with helplessness. And I'd like to show you or uh, ask you to consider this other option that God is offering you here through his Son, So as we finish tonight, I'd like to finish with the words of Helen Howarth Lemmel. O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There is a light for a look at the Saviour, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death, into life everlasting. He passed, and we follow him there. O'er our sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell.